For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? Need a reminder, we are, we are taking the fall and the spring this year to travel through the, um, the book of Galatians in a series we're calling Freedom. We call it that because the message of Galatians is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of freedom. In the last few weeks, we've seen how Paul describes the gospel as a message that through, the, through Jesus' life, through his death and through his resurrection and through that alone without adding to it, that we can be right with God. In fact, he he goes as far as to say that if you add anything to it, Jesus plus whatever, it destroys it, right? So we we came up with this helpful, uh, hopefully helpful uh, formula that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It, It dissolves. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In the last two weeks, we've looked at uh, the challenges to freedom. So the first one we looked at was legalism. Legalism is the idea that the things that you do um, make God like you or make God like you more, right, depending on where you fall in that. And, uh, and, and then last week, Jason helped us to see um, this, this idea of racism, the idea that, that the color of our skin or the practices of our culture make God like us. And, and Paul says that both of these ideas, legalism and racism, are opposed to the gospel. They are not walking in step with, in line with, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are antithetical to it. This week, though, we're not in Galatians. As, as I said, we're in James. And we're in James because... When we talk about this idea of the free grace of God, the gospel, the idea that nothing we do commends us to God, and that in fact it it is is by His grace and His grace alone that we are rescued from our sin and reconciled to Him, one of the first obvious questions is, well then, great, then I can go do whatever I want. Right? As a matter of fact, if, if we're not at least, like, that idea doesn't cross our minds in some way, I don't know that we're actually understanding the gospel. But is that an actual? Is that a is that a right conclusion to reach? And in fact, is that is Paul's testimony that that's what the the gospel is? This free offer of grace is that is that really what the Bible teaches as a whole? Because there are other passages in the Bible that seem to say something different than what Paul has said. And if that is the case, we need to know. We need to hear the whole counsel of God and not just one particular part. And so, if the gospel really is a free offer, why is it that some places seem to talk about us actually working for it? And that's why we're in James this morning, to ask that question. So if you have your place in the book of James, would you stand in honor of God's word? We'll be reading chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. This is God's very word, friends. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In the same way, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Okay? Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, this passage can be very confusing to us, but we need to hear from you. And so we ask that you would come and open our ears. Holy Spirit, would you... Would you work in our hearts to soften them, open our ears and our minds, help us to shake the cobwebs loose and to, to hear from you. We need to hear your gospel this morning, whether it's for the first time or for the one millionth time, we need to hear it. And so we ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would preach to us. Let Christ in his cross come to the fore, let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, because you, Lord, alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So one of the chief challenges that I hear when I talk to people about the Bible or about Christianity in general is this notion that, well, isn't the Bible just full of contradictions, right? Now, um, some of you here this morning may actually be thinking that, but often when I ask for an example of like what they mean, like, okay, okay, perhaps, you know, can you give me some examples of what you mean, the Bible's full of contradictions? None can be given, mainly because that, that phrase, isn't the Bible full of contradictions, is more of conventional wisdom, right? It's kind of a cultural assumption than it is an actual experiential one. In other words, uh, our culture just kind of seems to assume that without ever actually investigating it. Uh, but that said, some especially those who've, you know, taken a college Bible class, will bring up Paul and James, right? Well, sure, Bible's full of contradictions. How about Paul and James? And when they do, they're talking about this particular passage, okay? Paul says that you are justified by faith and not by works of the law. And here James says that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So clearly, the Bible's contradictory, right? I mean, clearly we have two different forms of Christianity here in the New Testament, Right? Clearly, we have two early church leaders arguing with each other about the nature of Christianity. Clearly, Christianity isn't as free as I would have, have had us think. Well, let's look and find out, okay? We're going to look at this passage this morning in three ways. We're going to look at uh, our faith in word, okay? We're going to look at our, our faith made visible, and then finally, we're going to look at faithful living. There's an outline in your bullets, and that's helpful. If not, just leave it. Let's start with faith in word by looking at empty words. Now, <clears throat> as soon as I said th- this idea that Bible's full of contradiction. I, I should be clear, like obviously most of you know that I don't believe that the Bible is full of contradictions or that Paul and James contradict each other. So what we need to do is we need to see what's being said and what isn't. But before we do that, it would be good to catch up on who this guy James is. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you're probably uh, familiar with James. Paul's talked about him a lot in the early part of Galatians. James was uh, the younger half-brother of Jesus. He's one of the sons of both Joseph and Mary. Um, And before Jesus died, James thought that his brother was crazy. 
I thought he was crazy. So he and there's there's uh, a passage in the Gospels where Mary and her kids, and we can assume James was one of them, um, came, showed up to try and fetch Jesus to bring him back home because they thought he was nutty. And before we get too hard on James, let's be honest, you would too. Well, I mean, think about it. What would you think if your goody-goody older brother, who always did everything right, um, you know, suddenly in his early 30s began walking around the countryside telling everyone that he was got the answer to God's promise to make the world right? You'd think, nah, I don't know, man. We, there's a padded room for you. Like, we'll figure this out later. Uh, come home. And that's what he did. Until... You see, Jesus died at the hands of the Romans, and then he rose from the dead. And what we are told is that, um, in, in one, of the, one of Paul's writings, that Jesus appeared after his resurrection, first to Peter, and then to James. Like this James, he appeared to James. And all of a sudden, James went from calling Jesus crazy to calling him Lord. Just like that. Not exactly your stereotypical church leader. So that's James, but let's get into this passage, shall we? Look down at verses 14 and 17. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no works? Can such a faith save him? Now, stop there. We need to understand that this, this sentence is the foundation for the entire passage. This is a question he's wanting to answer. If someone says they have faith but have no works, can that faith save them? Okay, that, that is the foundation for this entire section. James is setting up a hypothetical situation. Let's, let's say, for instance, he's saying. Okay? But we need to understand exactly the situation he's envisioning. And the whole question hinges on the verb, which um, in the, in the um, ESV it says, uh, if someone says he has faith, but a better way to, to um, translate it, in fact, is the word claim. Someone claims to have faith but has no works. And so, you know, the, the entire question hinges on that. So you, if you have a Bible with you, you should probably underline that. Okay? James isn't talking about a hypothetical of someone having faith and not works, whatever those are. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but the claim, right, if they say they have faith, he's talking about hypothetically, let's talk about someone who claims to have faith but has no works. Now, we'll get to what he means by faith in a second as well. But for now, let's just see that James is giving us a situation. Someone says, yeah, 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 I follow Jesus. Jesus is good. Me and Jesus. I love Jesus. He's great. Love him. But their lives are untouched by that. There's no uh, coordinate life change. And so James gives an illustration. And the illustration is basically this. Look, let's say somebody from among you, okay? You know somebody who is without clothes and without food and without housing. And you go to them and you say, hey, I hope you can, you know, I hope you'll be full when you go to bed tonight and I hope you find a bed. Hope you stay warm. Hope everything's great for you. And then you leave. James says, what good are those words? Like what he's not arguing at this point is that that particular um, expression has, ha, is, is united to faith. Like he talks about that in other places. What he's talking about is the point of the words, the connection there. It is about empty words. If you tell a starving person, hope you get filled, but you don't do anything about it, your words are meaningless. And so James says in the same way, the same way as that, if you ha- say you have faith but have no life change, your words are Meaningless. Meaningless. And he fleshes that out more in verses 18 and 19. Look there. James says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Okay. Sure. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith out of my works. Okay. We have to get this. Again, 
key words. The key word in there is show. Show, he says. The whole point here is this. You say you have faith? Great. Show me. Show me. This is all well and good. Blah, 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 blah. Show me. He is, he is being incredibly confrontational and not very PC. And then he lays it bare in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Demons also believe that and tremble with fear. Okay, listen to me. When James talks about God being one, okay, you remember James was raised culturally Jewish. The fundamental confession of the Jewish faith is something called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Okay? That is the fundamental confession that, uh, that those who were Jewish and had become Christians, who had begun following Jesus, that was still, their, that, that is what they were raised, to, this is it, this is what set them apart from the world. Um, not just the idea that there is one God that they worship, but the idea that all the others that claim to be aren't. And so here is, here is James saying, look, you believe that, you believe that Shema, good for you. Good for you. Golf clap. Good for you. So do demons. And they shake with fear. His implication is this. You say you have faith, but you have no life change. You don't have faith. You have a knowledge of propositions. And so do demons. Demons have very good theology, in fact. Much better than you and I. They actually seen the dude face to face. Right? They, they know him well. They just don't like him much. <laughs> Let me, let me bring this into our context really quick. Christian faith isn't believing in God. Okay, I know that some of us may have been thought that, yeah, yeah look, I, I know, I, I, don't, I haven't been to church, maybe never, or, you know, just coming back in, but, you know, it's okay. I, I mean, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Well, good, but Christian faith isn't believing in God. Christian faith isn't even believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Christian faith isn't being able to agree that you're not perfect. Or even being willing to assent that God, Jesus is God's only answer for your sin. Believe it or not. It is more than that. Christian faith is also not church membership, having been baptized, knowing John 3.16, or trying hard to be moral. Okay, Can it contain all of these things? It, it better well contain many of them, yes. But is it those things? No. It's not simply words, because our problem isn't simply wrong beliefs. It's much deeper than that. And so let me be clear. What James is dealing with here in this passage is not speculation on how you can be right with God. He's not setting up two possible options. You've got, you got faith over here, and then you've got works over here. That's not what he's doing. He's dealing with those who think they're okay with God because they hold to some propositions. Maybe even attend church, but their lives still reflect independence from God. They say they have something that they call faith, but it isn't biblical faith at all. It's just words. They haven't returned to dependence on God through Jesus. Jesus for them is like, um, it's like a get-out-of-hell-free card. You know, you roll the dice, you land it on chance, you pull it up like, ooh, that's nice, I'll keep this in my pocket, it may come in handy later. Like, that, that's not what Jesus is. He's not, for them, a Lord to follow or a Savior to love. And James says, if that is the case with you, your faith is useless. It is useless. 
And so that brings us to faith made visible. Okay? James gives us two examples of what true faith looked like. Okay? Radical ones. And both of these are from the Old Testament. The first is the story of Abraham. The second is the story of Rahab. Okay? Now, to get at the story of Abraham, we have to look a little bit at the story of the Bible. Okay? So in the first three chapters of the Bible, you have the story of how everything went wrong. Everything was good, but then it all went wrong. We, we turned away from God. We betrayed him. We, we became guilty before him as a, as a race, as humanity. Uh, but right there, right when we lost it all, God said, I'm going to make things right. And then a few chapters later, he starts to work out that promise. And he does so by choosing this guy named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I know you've been worshiping false gods in the city of Ur, but it's going to be through you and your family that I'm going to answer my promise. Now, the problem was, Abraham was 90 and had no kids. No kids. 90 years old, no kids. His wife is, you know, about nine years younger than him, but still... No children, okay? It's not really a problem. God is God. Little thing like age doesn't matter to him. So when Abraham's wife was 91 years old, she had a baby named Isaac. And then, okay, so that's the backstory. But then in Genesis 22, this really crazy thing happens where God tells Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac. And when I say that, I'm not meaning metaphorically, like... Lay your child up before... No, no, no. I mean, like, put him on an altar, knife, like, bad, okay? So he tells him to go do that. And Abraham begins to go through with it, all right? Now, that's kind of crazy. I mean, more than kind of, that's really crazy. Dude waits a hundred years to have a kid, finally gets one. God says, kill him, and he says, okay, and starts up the mountain with him, Okay. Now, we'll get to the rest of that story in a second. But that's the first instance. And then the second story he brings up is Rahab in verse 25. Now, Rahab is a prostitute in the city of Jericho. When God's people are coming out of Egypt, coming out of their slavery, out of Exodus, they're coming into the land that God had promised to Abraham and to his family. And as they're coming into the land, there's one problem. There's this big city with big tall walls by the name of Jericho. How are we going to take it? So they send spies into Jericho to spy it out to figure out where they can find a weak place. And the spies find their way to Rahab's house. Now, I am sure there is a very good explanation as to why two very godly men were in a brothel. Probably not. Um, but they're there, okay? So they're in Rahab's house, I'm sure, reading good novels and, and, and articles, right? And, and so the cops find out that, Rahab, that, that Rahab's housing spies. I don't mean cops. The authorities. And so the dudes with the swords come to the door and they knock on the door. Where are the spies, Rahab? And she hides them. She hides them because she suddenly believes that the God that they worship is the actual one true God and that um, they are, that, that God is actually going to give them the city. They're going to conquer the city. Now, here's the thing. She risks death by hiding these two dudes when she could have just as easily believed what she believed and then turned them in. Right? There's nothing telling that they're not going to fight. She hid them on the roof. Like, I mean, how, how many rooms are there to, to hide out in in an ancient house? There are not many. They didn't look on the roof for some reason, but they could have. Why would anyone do either of these things? Well, the answer is right there in verse 23. Because James says, when he's talking about Abraham, the scripture was fulfilled that said, he, that is Abraham, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. All right, now stay with me, because this can get really confusing. I need to clarify something. If you take this as James is writing it, and you believe that this is like some chronology, what you believe is that Abraham 
went to go sacrifice his son, which God interrupted, by the way, and said, don't do that. So don't think he went through with that. So, but you'd think that because he was willing to sacrifice his son, that God said, okay, because you obeyed me, you're righteous, right? You'd think that because he kind of writes it as if that's the case. But that's not the case. You see, this thing with Isaac happened in Genesis 22, But it's in Genesis 15, chapter 15, that that verse that he quoted happens, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. Genesis 15, Abraham's standing out in the midst of the night sky, and and God says, Abraham, look up. He looks up and he says, you see the stars in the sky? See them. He says, that's how many ancestors you're going to have, or how many many kids your family is going to get that big. Abraham says, "Uh, okay. I believe you. I believe you. God says, I'm going I'm to deal with sin through a family like that. And Abraham goes, okay, I believe you. I trust you. And he puts all of his eggs in God's basket. In other words, he has faith. And that is what Paul is talking about in Galatians. That is what true faith is as opposed to what James is railing against. Abraham had the promise of God. And he laid his faith, all of his hopes in that promise. And he returned to dependence on God. Similarly, we, we don't just have the promise of God. We actually have the fulfillment in Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer to that promise. Abraham looked up in the sky and saw a bunch of stars. And one of those stars in the mind of God is, look, there's a, there's a little dot of light that's coming. Metaphorically, of course. Like, little dot of light that's coming. One of your great, 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 great grandchildren. And he's going to fulfill this promise. Jesus lived a life we couldn't. And he died to bear our sin on the cross. He died in our place. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, just like Abraham, God credits us with righteousness. What that doesn't mean is that we become righteous because of our faith. What it means is when we place our faith in Jesus, our sin is credited to Jesus and his death cancels it. And his perfect life is credited, reckoned to us. It's not just believing a certain set of propositions. It is being reconciled to God and returning to the dependence we were made for. A dependence on God that's not just depending on Him for for some get-out-of-hell-free card, but depending on Him for, I, I trust your vision of the world, God, and not mine. Your vision of right and wrong, God, and not mine. Your your words that my identity come from you and not the identity I can create. The fact that you value me because you were willing to die for me, not any kind of value I get by acting a certain way. And if that is the case, then it is a faith that should be visible. And that leads us to seeing faith. Look down at verses 22 and 24. Now often, when we talk to each other, we have a a way of summing up what we've just said. And we, we have a concluding phrase that we use. It's called, you see. Right? You see, things work out this way. Or, you see, that's the way things happen in my life. And so we read that in this passage, and we automatically think James is making some kind of summary statement. He is not. In the original, the word literally is, you look at. You can visibly see. And so what he means is, James is saying, you can literally see that someone is right with God because of what they do. Do their actions make them right with God? No. No. Look, Abraham was right with God in Genesis 15. 15 years before the situation with Isaac. He's right with God then. 15 years later, God gives him this command to go and do something. 
The point is, in Genesis 22, you could literally see his faith in God's promise. The writer of Hebrews, one of the, one of the other books of the New Testament, the later New Testament, says that Abraham literally believed that what would happen is, if he killed Isaac, if God's telling him to kill Isaac, but Isaac is the, the one through whom the promise is coming, that God must be willing to raise Isaac from the dead. Literally says it. Why? Because he believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Faith in Jesus is the same. Look, if you believe that nothing commended you to God, that there was nothing that would merit his favor to you, that all you deserved before him was judgment, but he came and took that judgment for you, that he came and died in your place purely out of grace, then you will follow him. If you believe that in Christ God has given you everything, then there is nothing that this world can offer you. And so it should give shape to your life. And so James says in verse 22, you see, you see, you can see that his faith is working with his works. And through his works, his faith is brought to maturity. The ESV says completion. That's unfortunate. It means brought to maturity. Does it mean that it somehow made his faith happen? No, no, not at all. Okay, check back in if you checked out. Being reconciled to God through Jesus means not only being saved from judgment, being saved from our sin, but being saved for a new life. It's not just being saved from something, but being saved for something. A life with Jesus at the center. A life not oriented around us, but around God and others. A life where we follow our Savior to see others flourish and to give God glory, instead of always looking out for number one. And as we do that, our works come out of our faith. They come out of it. And our faith is matured. Okay? The 16th century reformer Martin Luther said it this way, that we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves us is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. If your life isn't being oriented in this way, if you have a lot of words and not much else, James would question where your faith is. Is your faith in Jesus? Or is your faith in your propositions? Is your faith in Jesus or is it in your church membership? Is it in Jesus or is it in your morality? This isn't, look, this is not a faith versus works as kind of alternative paths to God. Like, there's faith over here, and then we have this works path over here. That If you try really hard, you can get there too, uh, and, and that's actually where it's at. James isn't, isn't setting up that kind of dichotomy. The, the dichotomy he's setting up is empty faith, nominal faith, a not really faith, versus what true biblical faith is. A faith that is lived out through the life of the believer. The only kind of faith there truly is. All right? If that's the case, how should our faith be impacting our lives? Okay? I'm going to turn to faithful living, if, if I may, um, really quick. Look, we could take any number of ways to talk about these three things, right? Uh, like, how, how, what, we could take any number of, of things and, and kind of point to them and say, here are some ways that, that our faith should be working itself out. But I'm going to take three that specifically deal with some intensely held cultural idols. Right? Power, money, and sex. Okay? So the first of these is radical forgiveness. Stay with me, because this, this might get a little hard. We do not understand forgiveness in our culture, and, and Christians know better than anyone else. In fact, in Christian, kind of the Christian subculture, uh, forgiveness, uh, ironically enough, we, we think it means just getting over something. I've, I've gotten over that, which is 
our, our code word for I've forgiven them. When we say forgive, that's normally what we mean. I've, I've gotten over it. I'm at peace with it. I'm not angry anymore. <laughs> right? That's what we mean. That is not forgiveness. Okay? This is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the bearing of the weight of someone's betrayal of you by receiving the repentant betrayer back into reconciled relationship. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is the bearing of the weight of someone's betrayal of you by receiving the repentant betrayer back into reconciled relationship. You catch that? Forgiveness is actually about having a relationship. It's actually about a restored relationship. It isn't private. It's not something you do on your own without ever connecting with the other. And it is conditioned upon repentance. Now, I I say that because that is the model of forgiveness we see God doing. And I'm pretty sure he needs to be the model for us of all things, right? God's forgiveness on us is about reconciled relationship with him, and it is completely conditioned on our repentance, our repentance and faith, okay? And the same is true, it should be true in our lives, which means that forgiveness is a very risky thing It places us in a position where we may be hurt again. So why would faith in Jesus Christ actually create that? Why would it produce such a thing? Let me me give us three ways why, why it should. First, faith in Jesus Christ should produce radical forgiveness because we understand who we are. That we are capable of any wrong that's been done to us. There's nothing wrong with me that's not wrong with you. And so I I can't, I can't, uh, get self-righteous about the ways in which you've hurt me. How, how could you possibly do such a thing? Because I understand I could have possibly done such a thing. Two, faith in Jesus Christ should produce radical forgiveness because it tells us that God loved and forgave us when we had betrayed him. And that love was not meaningless. It was he loved us by bearing hell in our place. By bearing eternal judgment in our place. Judgment that we were due. And judgment, quite frankly, that he would have been just to have taken out on us. And three, faith in Jesus Christ should produce radical forgiveness because Jesus has secured our place before God and conquered death itself. In other words, our greatest enemies have been dealt with so we don't have to protect ourselves anymore. I don't have to. The worst that can happen to me has already been conquered. Forgiveness is about giving over power and our rights to vengeance. It is completely countercultural. Jesus calls his people to be a people of forgiveness, always being willing to forgive. In other words, to be reconciled. Always being willing to be reconciled to the offender because he is. Because he is. Okay? So that was radical forgiveness. Second, radical generosity. Listen to me. Most of us in this room have a wonderful, functional Savior in our lives, and it is not Jesus Christ. It is Benjamin Franklin, right? If we're being honest, he's the one that we think is going to save us. We believe that, if, that we can make our world right, feel fulfilled, and get an identity if we have enough money. Everything will be just okay if I have enough dollars in the bank, uh, security in my 401k. I'm, gonna, I'm taken care of forever. That's what we think. But faith in Christ should radically change the way we view our money. Here's a few ways. One, it should, if we're trusting in Christ and and believe what the Bible says about him, then it should produce radical generosity by showing us that our money is not our money. 
It's not ours. Everything we have is a grace from God. And if Jesus is Lord over all, He is Lord over our money as well. But it should also show us, uh, faith in Christ should also show us that, we, that money can't give us the identity we long for. It can't make us important. can't make us special. It certainly can't make us uh, worth something. Only Jesus can, and in fact has. But lastly, because it, it reveals to us the depths of our own heart, it shows us our own heart's tendency to move back towards that idol, to move back towards believing that money is all that can save us. And so we actually give it away to push against that. Look, listen to me. The middle class dream cannot fulfill you. I know we think it can. And many of us in this room, we, we struggle with that every day, that if I just, I just keep working up the ladder and keep getting that next raise, the bigger house, the nicer lawn, the better cars, the more toys, the what have you. It can't. And if you believe that Jesus is the one that can, then it both frees you and, not just frees you, but compels you to actively give away your money, to push against that. And it compels you to live, out, live that out through generosity. First, in, in the giving that God requires to His purposes, through the church, we call that the tithe. And then, even more than that, secondarily, through, through, uh, through just everyday generosity to those who are in need. So it should produce radical uh, forgiveness, radical generosity, and lastly, radical chastity. Now, that is an old-fashioned word that many of you are probably smirking at, at least internally. So listen real quick. Um, what we normally think that word means is abstaining from, from uh, sex in total, okay? I need everybody to listen to me real quick. God invented sex. He thinks it's pretty cool, okay? And so do most of you. That's okay, all right? Um, th- that's, that's great, in fact, Chastity doesn't mean that. Chastity means abstaining from sex outside of marriage as God defines it between a man and a woman, which means that if you are a married couple, you are called to chastity as well. It means nothing outside of that relationship, right? Now, some of you are like, you know, I haven't been in church in a long time, and I finally come in, and the preacher's already railing against sex. I knew it was going to happen. All right, just stay with me, okay? Hear me out. Our culture is convinced that sexuality is the core of who we are. That it is the core of who we are. That it constitutes our identity and refusing to express it somehow suppresses our humanity. That somehow we are less than human if we do not express our sexuality. That, friends, is completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ reorients us, uh, first and foremost, by showing us that our identity has been secured for us in Jesus And we are not reductionistically defined by our sexuality. The idea that your identity is wrapped up in one aspect of your being, this this thing we call sex, is so insulting to us as people. You are made in the image of God and restored to that in Christ. But two, it also exposes the fact, faith in Christ will expose the fact that the very things we were looking for in sex couldn't be attained through it, okay? Okay? It, it cannot. Your your desire to be special, to be wanted, to be powerful, to be to be uh, to be desired, that cannot be fulfilled in that. It's fleeting. It runs away. But it can it it can be fulfilled through being reconciled to God. Third, uh, faith in Christ should produce radical chastity by freeing us from our bondage to our own selfishness and our drive for self-gratification and instead 
Instead, turning us outward to use all of our person to serve. And lastly, faith in Christ should produce radical chastity by by showing us that we were made to enjoy the delights of unfettered intimacy, which we were. We were made to enjoy those delights of unfettered intimacy with another within the safe confines of a promise-bound relationship, just like the one that we have with God through Jesus. It's called a covenant. So faith in Christ should produce radical forgiveness, radical generosity, and, and then radical chastity. Let me conclude. Friends, our faith must be seen. Around here we call it showing Jesus, right? That the mission of this church is to help people encounter Jesus, know Jesus, and show Jesus. Uh, we call it showing Jesus. As we grow in knowing Jesus, others should be able to see him in our lives. But we don't do that to get something from God. Nor do we do that so that he will like us. <laughs> okay? We do that because we have received everything from God and because he has loved us in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, your, your grace is amazing. Your grace not only to, to somehow cancel a debt or, or to erase uh, a, a, a record, uh, but in fact to transform us, to make us new, to send us out, to uh, save us not only from our sins, but for a new life. So Lord, I pray for us as a congregation that you would reorient us, that our faith, which is freely given to us, Lord, you, you have given us all things. You have given us grace in Jesus. And there is nothing we ever did to merit that. And we give you praise for that. But that grace is transformative and not just uh, declarative. Lord, you work it in us and transform us into your people, sanctifying us and making us more and more like Jesus every day. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that in the life of this congregation so that the, this city might see you in and through us. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.